Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm Joey Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sage tutor Henry, who scored a 180 on his June 2020 LSAT. This was his second official LSAT score, and we talk about how he prepared differently to improve. After that, Henry and I discuss two logical reasoning questions from the June 2007 prep test to reveal how the test writers construct traps and demonstrate some blind review techniques that will help you avoid them. So without further ado, please enjoy. I have Seven Sage Tutor Henry here with me. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to get started, let's find out a little bit more about you. Where did you go to school? Tell us something about your background. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I graduated back in 2017. I think I'm on the slightly older side of people who are applying to law school. I'll be 27 by the time I finally start. I currently am an engineer. I studied engineering in college, petroleum engineering. I'm from Houston. You know, it's kind of the hometown industry. Seems like it's what uh, everybody uh, does here. So I work in the oil and gas industry now. I do a lot of stuff with carbon dioxide. There are some interesting things happening in the industry right now with all of these oil companies all of a sudden are talking a lot about trying to go carbon neutral. So it's a really interesting time, but I'm also ready to you know take my next steps. I applied to law school during the pandemic, got into a number of schools and ended up deciding on Columbia. And I am currently on a one-year deferral for that. And so I'll be going to Columbia this fall, actually. I'm very excited to move up out of Texas and to New York. It'll be definitely an interesting change. That sounds really cool. Are you planning to stay in your current industry after law school? Or is, is this just like a big career change and you're curious to explore what other legal options are available? So I think it's definitely the uh, latter. The oil and gas industry, I can't complain about it too much. You know, I, I come from a city where for all of the controversy that there is about the industry. I come from a city that is supported by this industry. I grew up knowing almost everyone around me, you know, either worked in the industry or they had some connection to it. But I think it's my time to uh, get on out of it. It seems like it's sort of things are slowing down a little bit. There's a taste for changing to more sustainable things in, in the entire world at the moment. You know, you see all kinds of people investing in solar, investing in wind and everything. So I don't have too much to complain about, but it's tough to picture a whole career in this industry, you know what I mean? And so going to law school is kind of, I think, the shift that I need, especially, you know, getting out of Texas a little bit. I'm hoping I'll start my career on the East Coast or something, because I think I, I don't know how much choice I would have in it if I come back to Texas. I might just get slotted back into the industry, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. A lot of the law firm service are uh, service the oil and gas industry as well in the region. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, the the big firms down here, you know, uh, Baker Botts, Vincent, Vincent and Elkins, they're like really established by oil guys, do a lot of work with the oil and gas industry. So, you know, I don't know that maybe eventually I could see down the road myself coming down here and doing some stuff, but I, I definitely want to get my start outside. I would like to do some kind of environmental law to be able to utilize my background. I think it's relatively rare that someone has the technical experience that I have to understand a lot of this carbon stuff and a lot of the energy stuff. So, you know, I think I have a unique take and I could do something in environmental law or, you know, an adjacent field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't get too many engineers in law school. In fact, probably quite the opposite. I feel like it has a selection effect for people who, you know, who think that math is kind of hard. Yeah. And the thing is, when you do have a science background, everyone wants you to be a patent lawyer. It's all that anyone says when they find out I'm going to law school. <laughs> They're, they, they, they're all, oh, you know, I have this cousin who did patent law and he's doing great. I'm, okay, I get it. I, I just want to, <laughs> I want a break. I've been doing math for years now. Yeah. Well, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for you to explore what kind of law to practice through clinicals and your summer programs. So yeah, it's, I think you're going to have a lot of fun. 
figuring that out. Let's talk about your LSAT. So your official LSAT score that you applied and got into law school with is a 180, and you got that in June of 2020. But you also have another LSAT score on record, a 167 from four years prior to that in February 2016. So maybe start by talking to us about why do you have two LSAT scores that's four years separated? I mentioned that it's hard to envision an entire career in the industry that I work in. It's, it's hard to envision lasting that long here. There was a huge crash right before I graduated from college. Nobody was getting jobs. I graduated college in 2017, and oil took a big dip in sort of the 2014 to 2016 period. There was a while where we had over $100 oil for an extended period of time with their big shale boom and everything. And then OPEC started really flooding the market because they can make in Saudi Arabia, you can make you can make oil for such a low amount of money. You know, it's ten it's $10 a barrel they're spending to get that stuff out of the ground or less in some cases, you know? Wow. They have such an astronomical amount of oil and they have such good rock that they're working with that we can't even compare. Where you see a lot of companies here that their break even is $40, $50. And so when you start seeing oil drop below that, it's just there's companies start, you know, they stop drilling wells, they stop doing all, they stop doing all kinds of stuff. And so we saw the market flood. So you were reading the winds. Exactly. No. And well, so I was interning in the oil and gas industry and I had all kinds of people on the last day of one of my internships, an executive got in front of us and said, you know, I really want you to remember the connections that you made here this summer. And that was the, oh my God, we're not, they're not giving us jobs. <laughs> These guys aren't hiring us. Luckily, I did end up getting hired by them. So that's why, that's why I'm working in the industry now, but it didn't look so hot for a while. So I took the LSAT back in 2016 to have a backup option. My brother went to law school as well, and he's a lot older than me. He's, thir he's 13 years older than me. So he graduated from law school before I was even in high school. So it was something I had always considered a little bit. So I started studying around the time I started panicking about the industry. In December of 2015, I got my first LSAT book. It was the Fox Primer. Because I was like, what's the shortest thing I can read to get an idea of this test? And so I took I took that or I read that and I started PTing, you know, in the mid high 160s. I, ha I think I had one that was a 170. And I was like, if I can eke that out on test day, I'll be happy. I got the 167, which I was, you know, I was okay with. I know that I'm very privileged to be working with, working with, you know, the score that I ended up getting. I don't want to want to say anything negative about a 167. I would have applied to all of the same schools that I did, and I would have felt that I had a good chance at them. But things changed. The industry started looking a little better. I got a job. So I decided not to go to law school. So that's the story of that 2016 test. Gotcha. And when you started with the LSAT, was it just logic games that was difficult? Yeah, that was most of it. I could go sort of minus two, minus zero on logical reasoning, on reading comprehension. You know, I'm not the fastest reader, but if I was having a good day, I could go minus two, minus four on it. But then games, I would not even finish a game or two. You know what I mean? And that's something that... Yeah, pretty typical for people who, who have diagnostics in the mid to high 160s. It's just logic games. So you basically just kind of patched up your logic games four years later. And now you've been in your job for like four years and you're thinking about law school again. Yeah, exactly. So it was sort of a combination of things. The industry was not doing so hot again in 2020, obviously, because of, you know, the pandemic and a number of other factors. So it seemed like it was a good time to start thinking about law school again. And I've been very politically active the last few years. Again, I have all of the environmental experience. So it felt like a good fit for me. And I'm interested in doing a little less technical work. So I studied again, I fixed up the logic games, which was, man, easier said than done. I always tell people, 
you start with logic games. It's the easiest one to improve, and it is, but oh my god, it's the easiest one to just be completely inconsistent on as well. Yeah, it does take a lot of cultivating good habits and developing good processes. Absolutely, absolutely. And not forgetting to actually implement these processes that you develop. Yeah, very cool. So, okay, so you got it. You got a 180. Were you surprised to get the 180 or were you PTing perfect scores and this was just a walk in the park for you? I had PTed a 180 twice. And what was making me really nervous at the time was so when I started studying again, I told myself I wasn't even going to take a PT until I perfected games, basically. I didn't start out using Seven Sage, actually. I started out using the Logic Games Bible because that's, you know, that's what a lot of people online talk about. And I basically read that whole thing. And I didn't know about foolproofing, but I basically did foolproof all of the games that are in that book. And then I started PTing. And the problem I had was that I would, I took my first PT after I did that and I got a 177 on it. And then I was very excited. That was the moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to law school. Yeah. It was, it yeah. was the first time I really felt that I could be, I, I felt that I could be at the top of something. You know what I mean? Right. That, that I could right, get right. one of those LSAT scores that gets me into one of the top schools. And that's something that it feels like a reach no matter where you are. And I just feeling like I was, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to being at the top of anything. <laughs> and so I was like, I have to apply to law school. I kept practicing. I took a second PT and I got a 174 and I was like, okay, still pretty good. You know, not quite the 177. I took another one and I got a 165 lower even than my previous LSAT score. Yeah, owing to logic games. It was I, I completely did not I missed a couple questions on one game. And I completely did not do the fourth game. I just lost a ton of time. I misread a rule, something like that. And you know, this had happened a couple of times over the years, I had thought about studying for the LSAT again. And I would, you know, I would pick up the books, I would start studying a little bit, I would take a PT, and I would get like a 165. And I'm like, okay, I'm not getting better than I already have the 167. If I'm going to apply with that, I'm not going to study. So I had dropped it a few times. And then I said, Oh, my God, it's happening again. And so immediately, I wanted to take another test, I take another one, it's a 168, still, you know, a score I should be happy with. It's a good score. It's enough to get me into at that point, my dream school was, you know, UT Austin, because I had gone there for college. And it's quote, unquote, the best school in Texas. But you already know you can do better. Yeah, exactly. I know I can do better. I know I can do better. And so I was so close to not taking the exam. I told my wife, I can't do this. You know, I'm I'm blowing it and I, I don't know what's happening. I don't have the consistency to score the way I thought I did. And she signed me up for the LSAT <laughs> to <laughs> force me to she was like, No, you're you're studying. <laughs> like like I, I was just I was just ready to give up, you know? Yeah. So she, I mean, talk about, it sounds corny, but if there's somebody who I owe a large amount of my success to, it really is my wife because I am such a distracted person. I'm all over the place with, you know, I'm a guy who goes through 20 hobbies a year because I just can't like stick to anything. And so I was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm not taking the LSAT. She signed me up for it. And so then it was really time to hit the books because I was like, okay, I have to get this right. I think in the end, across my last I took 21 prep tests. I think I ended up going minus zero on logic games in 20 in a row once I started getting really serious. And I think I, I was averaging a 174. All of a sudden I was averaging a 177. I got two 180s. And so I knew I knew it could happen. I knew what a 180 felt like. Because both of the times it happened, I was like, that was a 180. I could feel like that I was in the zone. There's no better feeling than being in the zone and staying in it the whole time. But on test day, so I took the June 2020 test. I opened the test and I'd seen people, nobody's talking in specifics about the test online, obviously, because LSAC will sue you. Um, <laughs> but people are talking about the test and they're saying, oh my God, this game section was insane. It's There's this 
apartment game and I've never seen anything that difficult. And I was like, man, I hope I don't get that one, you know, because they're this was right when the flex had started. And so they're doing a few tests a day and they're repeating the same thing. So I know it's possible that I can get that same test in the afternoon that people got in the morning. I start taking the test. I open it. Section one is games and it's the apartment game (laughs) (laughs) that I had seen people posting about. And I just panicked. And I swear I, you know, I was trying to diagram. I was trying to remember my fundamentals, JY. I'd watched so many of those videos, so many of your videos where it's like, this is a very simple sequencing game. We should get this one done in about under five minutes. I'm like, (laughs) I, 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 I opened the test and I'm just sitting there and I don't know what to do. And I think I lost at least three minutes on the front front end just panicking and I ended up getting it together and finishing the section but normally I had gotten so comfortable with games I'm used to finishing with like five minutes left I was about to say yeah because when you said three minutes I'm like well but if you finish ahead of time you know if you're used to finishing ahead of time three minutes is actually okay you actually have that to burn that's the thing but it's I was so used to being able to go back and you know I do catch even if I'm consistent I do catch wrong answers when I go back and check all the time, even on games, they just little little slip ups you do. And so I didn't have that time. And I didn't feel good about it because I felt rushed oh, the whole time. I you see. know what I mean? I see. And so yeah, I got to the yeah. end. And I was just like, that's it. I blew it. And <laughs> at least I had finished, you know, I knew there was a chance. I was like, okay, maybe I can get a 170 a 173 something based on that section. Then you know, I went through LR and I was like, man, that was an easy LR section. It wasn't a tough one. Mm-hmm. And then I had RC. And I was like, that was an easy RC section too. So maybe <laughs> I start thinking maybe the curve's going to help me. Maybe it was just a hard game section. Maybe I'm not going to do any worse on games than anybody else. Maybe it's fine. Right. You know, and I, I was having nightmares for weeks after that about like oh. getting my score back and it's a 167 again. Again, I want to say a 167 is a good score. <laughs> To the people listening <laughs> to this podcast. Again, it's the knowing I can do better. Yeah. But then that day, the day the scores came out, I woke up, I looked at my phone, I, I saw people posting on Reddit already that the scores were out. I look at my score, I see the 180, and I <laughs> I wake my wife up and I say, Casey, 180. And she's just immediately like, she literally pops straight up out of bed and like is like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's awesome. I just, yeah, it was honestly probably the one of the the times in my life that I've been in just the most pure disbelief that I had actually pulled it off. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know. It's it's a it's a magical score. So I guess you don't really know how uh, the game section turned out if you actually went minus zero or minus one because they didn't disclose. Yeah, that was what I wondered. I know I never got to find out if I went minus zero or minus one. I figure like when they used to release these scale conversions, sometimes you can get a 180 back when the test had 100 scored questions or sometimes 101 scored questions. I've seen curves as generous as like minus two and still land on a 180. But with like just 75 questions, I mean, the curve has to be tighter. So I don't know if they, you can you can still get a 180 getting any questions wrong. But regardless, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you it feels like there's an asterisk by it because it was the lsat flex but it still feels good <laughs> i mean the lsat flex is the, just the normal lsat now right like uh, the lsac has has said that they're not changing it for at least several years uh, moving forward it's just going to be the yeah this is just the lsat well the one thing though is that the difference is that they called mine the lsat flex and the new one is just called the lsat right it's the same thing it's 75 question yeah it yeah it absolutely is the same thing i was just saying mine literally does when you go in and look at it it says lsat oh, flex oh, oh. Oh, yeah, okay, that's okay. why I'm saying it does literally have like an asterisk by it. Oh, I see. All right. Well, I think it's probably all the same for uh, admissions. It got me into school. I got into nine of the 10 schools I applied to. I'm looking at you, Yale. Yale, they, they said no to me. They can. 
<laughs> or they waitlisted me. And then I was like, I'm not riding a waitlist. Who do you think I am? <laughs> did Columbia give you some money? They did. I did get a fellowship at Columbia. That was a big selling point for me. In addition to going up and being near a, a lot of my wife's family is up in the Northeast. One of her cousins who we're very close with actually goes to the city college, the medical school right there. Yeah, literally it's right next to there in, you know, Morningside Heights, Harlem area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I'm super excited for you. Thank you. I'm excited. I figured we should talk about some logical reasoning questions. I think that would be interesting for the listeners to hear us dissect two very challenging logical reasoning questions from the June 2007 prep test. Oh, yeah. Love to. Yeah. So we're going to look at a section. This is uh, June 2007. That's a freely available prep test that LSAT releases for free. One of the many that they release for free. But we're going to look at section three, question 18, and section two, question 17. So let's look at section three, question 18 first. This is the one about the cultures and police hiding somebody from police. I'll do this. I'll read out the question stem. I'll read out the stimulus. And then, you know, you and I, are uh, we can discuss it. The question stem says the reasoning in the editorialist argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that the argument does something. So this is a flawed descriptive weakening question. So we have to read the stimulus, figure out where the argument is, like the premise, conclusion, are there multiple premises? Is there a complex support structure? So the editorialist says in all cultures, it's almost universally accepted that one has a moral duty to prevent members of one's family from being harmed. So if you're a parent, you have a moral duty to prevent your child from being harmed. Thus, this is sentence number two, Thus, few would deny that if a person is known by the person's parents to be falsely accused of a crime, it will be morally right for the parents to hide the accused from the police. So there's a lot of like abstract language there. If you translate that, the second sentence is basically saying, thus, few would deny that if your mom knows that you are falsely being accused of a crime, it will be morally right for your mom to hide you from the police. When the police come looking for you, it's okay for your mom to hide you. And then third sentence says, hence, it is also widely likely to be widely accepted that it's sometimes morally right to obstruct the police in their work. So that's it. That's the three-sentence argument. And the question stem is telling us there is definitely something not right with the reasoning. But of course, it's our job to figure out just what is wrong with the reasoning. Henry, first reaction, just initial reactions to this stimulus. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I kind of like this argument. I, I, I got to be honest, I'm having a hard time finding a flaw in it. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. This is a very well-crafted argument when they're telling you there's a vulnerability in the reasoning, right? Something about this reasoning doesn't check out. Yet, here we are reading the stimulus and we get this distinct feeling that this argument sounds good. Right? Like, why do you think that is? And what can we do to counteract that? The first mistake I think we can make when we look at this and think, this feels like a pretty solid argument. I don't know where the flaw is. The first mistake I think that pushes us there is the LSAT writers making this two sort of sub arguments. We've got a connection from that first sentence to the second sentence, and then from the second sentence to the third sentence. And I personally really zoned in on the connection right where the conclusion is. I think if we take the last two the, sentences The main conclusion, alone, right? The, la the last sentence, you mean? The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. That's right. Yeah, so if we're to focus in on, few would deny that if a person is known by the person's parents to be falsely accused of a crime, it would be morally right for the parents to hide the accused from the police. So we take that as true. Let's say that that's biblical truth. Hence, it is also likely to be widely accepted that it is sometimes morally right to obstruct the police in their work. You know, maybe we're making a small assumption in what obstruction of police work is, but but overall, I got to say, I think this flows pretty naturally. You know, it might not be a 100% argument, but, you know, this is a pretty solid argument. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. If I think that's a necessary assumption you just identified there, right? Like if we took, if we deleted the first sentence from the stimulus and we were left with just the second and third sentences and we were asked a necessary assumption question instead, I think you'd, you'd be right to point that out. Like you have to say that hiding a suspect from the cops 
amounts to obstruction of police work, which, you know, by common sense, interpretations of those phrases, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's legal, technical legal definitions of what obstruction of police work is, but at least common sense interpretation, that sounds right, but that is definitely a necessary assumption we need to identify. And because I think we all sign off on that, we all feel like, yeah, hiding a suspect from the police probably counts as looks like obstruction of police work. So that's where we get the sense that this argument runs through. That's why we're maybe a little flustered when we look at the question stem again, and the question stem is telling us, nope, there's some Something not right in the argument. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we've realized this, I think now it's time to go back and look at the connection between the first sentence and the second sentence. And, you know, maybe this is where we're going to find the flaw. So it's going to be somewhere, I guess, we go back to being universally accepted that one has a moral duty to prevent one's family members from being harmed. We're jumping from that to few people would deny that if you're going to be falsely accused of a crime, it's okay for your parents to hide you from the cops. We're making a jump there somewhere. Right. Okay. Well, tell me where the jump is, right? So I'm trying to, I'm embodying this moral principle, right? Like I'm imagining I have a child and my child, I have a, therefore I have a moral Moral duty to prevent my child from being harmed. And then I'm, I'm thinking, well, the cops are after my child, but I know my child's innocent. I know my child's being falsely accused. So where's the jump? Why isn't morally right for me to hide my child from the cops? So the same way we, we identified that necessary assumption in obstruction of police work, I think something that we have to recognize here is that for this argument to flow correctly, you know, it has to be a necessary assumption that hiding a falsely accused person from the police rises to that moral duty of preventing one's family member from being harmed. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely one necessary assumption. It's not clear that it does count as harm. I mean, what is the police here to do? We don't even know, right? Maybe the police just wants to talk to my child, right? Like, we'd have to make quite a few empirical assumptions about the world to be worried about harm. We have to be worried that the police is going to brutalize my child, right? Because that's just what the cops do or something like that, right? But th those, those assumptions are totally unwarranted. That's just that one assumption. I think there's another assumption present as well, which is that here they're talking about moral duty in the first premise. And then in the second sentence, they talked about what is morally right, which, you know, what is or isn't morally right often depends on what moral duties are involved and how the calculus plays out. Because if this is a situation where there is only one moral duty that activates, then you just run the calculus through like, hey, what does moral duty tell you to do in this situation? This one single moral duty. And, and did you did you obey or didn't you obey? Which determines if right or wrong. But I feel like this argument definitely allows, even though it doesn't mention it, but like presumably other moral duties are operating here. How about the moral duty to be a law-abiding citizen? That's a moral duty. I mean, clearly we have many, many moral duties. And part of the difficulty of ethics is precisely the fact that moral duties come into conflict, right? So for them to say that this, it is morally right for you to hide your innocent child from the cops, I feel like they did some moral calculus in the background. They didn't show their work. I'm not convinced that it is morally right. Absolutely. And I think one of the really tough things about this question is how many parts there are to this argument. There are so many places where when I'm under timed conditions and I'm trying to zone in on a prephrase so that I can just get this question right and move on because I'm getting desperate towards the end of the section, I'm going to zone in on, okay, they said all cultures, you know, that's pretty extreme. And we said almost universally accepted. And I start testing myself on what words mean. And I, I sort of get lost <laughs> in the sauce. And somewhere along the line, I miss that, yeah, they're doing this moral calculus in the background. And if I don't get there, I'm going to really struggle and I'm going to start having to just deploy methods by brute force on the answer choices. Yeah, I think that's what we're doing now. It's highly unrealistic of how we would behave 
under time conditions. I'll tell you, like under time conditions, I will read the stimulus. I will know this is a flawed descriptive weakening. I will read the stimulus and then I will be like, what? Right? <laughs> what's going on here? I don't know what's going on. And then I will read the stimulus again. I probably still won't know what's going on, but then I'm going to move into the answer choice and start process eliminate. And I'm going to see if an answer choice feeds me, prompts me to think about the right thing. Maybe I'll zone in on B, maybe not. If I don't, I'm just going to flag this question and move on. And the whole thing's probably going to take no more than a minute and a half max because I just, it's a hard question. Like you get the, you get the signal that it's a hard question when you know it's a flaw question, but you can't identify the flaw. That's your signal. It's a hard question. So you're already on, at least you should be already on alert to get ready to move on from this. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like what we're doing now is the stuff that you want to do on blind review to really squeeze all the juice out of this. What you said about the qualifiers here in the first sentence is it, it is almost universally accepted. <laughs> that was that writer's inviting you to think, oh, is it because it's not universally accepted? Is that why this argument doesn't work? And then the second sentence says, few would deny, right? And then the third sentence says, it's also likely to be widely accepted. See, the reason why we don't have to think about the qualifiers is because the qualifiers match all throughout. It's all like fairly strong on the spectrum. Not absolute, but you know, the first sentence is univer- almost universally accepted. Second sentence, few would deny it, meaning most people wouldn't deny it. And then third sentence, it's likely to be widely accepted. So you see, if the qualifiers all kind of trace each other, then they cancel each other out in a sense. You can just deal with the sub- substance of, of what, what's being qualified. That'll help you focus on the right thing. Absolutely, yeah. Let's look at B, which says, fails to consider possibility that other moral principles will be widely accepted as overriding any obligation to protect a family member from harm. Why is this the right answer? So this is exactly what you were saying about this is one moral duty. And if the only moral duty we had was to prevent one's family members from being harmed, if we do make that necessary assumption that, okay, preventing them from being harmed means hiding them from the cops and everything. If that's our only moral duty, then sure, maybe it's morally right. Maybe we can make that jump. But it's exactly what you were saying. We have a number of moral duties. We have to be, you know, we should be law-abiding citizens. We should, maybe we're supposed to hold our family accountable, even if we're supposed to prevent them from harm. I don't know. I don't know what the moral calculus is that's happening here. And maybe helping the police in the universe of this question is the overriding obligation. I don't know. And so I think we have to go with B, that it's possible that there's something else that's really driving the moral calculus here, that there are a bunch of bricks going on the side of the balance that supports turning in our family member. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, even if if you're having a hard time, like sort of imagining how that could be, if you know your kid is innocent, why it still might be the moral right thing. I mean, here's the scenario, right? Like, you want to make sure the cops actually find out who did this. Let's say it was a heinous murder crime and the cops are on the wrong trail. Like your your son has a solid alibi because he was at a party attended by like 100 people. So there are 100 witnesses. Well, then don't you want the cops to know as soon as possible that they're on the wrong trail so that they can actually go out and find the actual criminal who did this? So there's an instance where I think it's pretty clear that it would be morally right for you to assist the cops and not hide. Because like if you hide yours, that actually kind of makes it look like he is the person that did it. Oh, yeah. If he was going to clear his name before, maybe now he's going to jail for uh, yeah. obstruction of justice. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. You, you too, right? Now, we, now we've done harm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now you've done, now you've done a harm. Okay, so that's, that's why B is right. A is a super attractive answer, but it's not the right answer. A says, utilizes a single type of example for the purpose of justifying a broad generalization. So when I read A, my cookie cutter radar is going off. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen A as the right answer in plenty of flawed descriptive weakening questions. And I'm sure yours is too, but why doesn't it work here? So this is when we start having to deploy that two-part test of, is this something that the argument actually did? And furthermore, if it is descriptively accurate of the argument, is it actually a flaw? So we start after asking ourselves, 
We use a single type of example for the purpose of justifying a broad generalization. In fact, I think we did sort of the opposite of this. I don't think this is what the argument did. I think we made a broad generalization at the beginning about preventing a family member from being harmed. And then all of a sudden we go in and say, and that means you get to hide your kid from the cops. You know, I think that's <laughs> yeah. the single type of example that we're justifying with the generalization. Yeah. Yeah. For the movement from premise to conclusion in our premise, in our stimulus, is from broad to narrow. You start with a broad moral duty, and then you're using it to make a conclusion about a specific situation. Whereas A is describing that picture as flipped on its head, starting from narrow, moving into broad. So it fails step one. It's not descriptively accurate. So that, that's probably the clearest reason why it's not the right answer. I completely agree with you, though, that when I see one of these cookie cutter answers, I start feeling all nice and warm inside, and I just want to pick it and move on. But yeah, I would hope in this situation, as confused as I was the first time I read this stimulus, I would hope that I would move on and look at some of the answer choices. But, you know, who knows under timed conditions? I Maybe this is the question that gives me a 179 instead of a 180 if it was on the, 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 June, <laughs> the June 2020 exam. Yeah, same. I have no confidence I will actually get this right under time conditions. I mean, or, or if I get it right, it would just purely be by process of elimination and I would definitely flag it because there's some element of luck and I will want to review. Absolutely. This is a question. I'm hoping, I'm hoping I have two minutes at the end of the section and I get to come back and look at a couple questions and I'm, I'm hoping this is one of them for sure. Yeah. And we haven't even fully revealed how difficult this question is because we haven't talked about C and D and E, which are like, they're less popular wrong answers, but I think they're quite attractive. Like C, for example, says presumes without providing justification that allowing the police to arrest an innocent person assists rather than obstructs justice. I mean, there are a lot of words in there that like we're thinking about. Are you assisting the police? Or are you obstructing the police? Not letting police arrest somebody. So C does the good job of like superficially mapping onto the content of the argument, but C's very much wrong. And furthermore, it's playing on where I thought the flaw was gonna be originally. Before I decided, okay, the second sentence does support the third sentence, and I do like that argument, and I stopped looking for the flaw there. This is playing on my first instinct. Okay, maybe we, maybe something about obstructing the police, I don't really know. Maybe I end up liking this answer because I haven't thought hard enough about the fact that the flaw could be earlier on in the argument. That's really the point, yeah, because C is picking up on, you know, it's almost, I almost feel like the LSAT test writers laid out bait here because they laid out a pretty straightforwardly identifiable assumption from sentence two to three, which is what we said about if you're high somebody from the police, does that count as obstruction of justice? And so if it were a necessary assumption question, we'd definitely expect to find that linking kind of answer to show up. So C, I think, is definitely playing with that. But it's actually not saying it in the right way because the argument doesn't presume that allowing the cops to arrest an innocent person assists justice. The argument, in fact, presumes that not allowing the cops to arrest an innocent person obstructs justice. So for C to pass that step one descriptive accuracy, we need to heavily edit what it says. It's because right now it's just it's saying the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, under timed conditions, we just can't lose these fundamentals of thinking about this test and actually thinking through the descriptive accuracy and whether it's actually a flaw, you know, but on the test, they're going to be testing my ability to stay calm, cool and collected and not just make that mistake of seeing, okay, obstructs justice. That's what I thought. See, yeah. If your client came to you with this question, what kind of advice would you give him or her? I mean, I suppose we'd have to make some assumptions about who this client is. And then let me know what you would say to them. 
So a lot of my clients, when they come to me confused about a stimulus, I say, let's map it out. You know what I mean? We're going to spend enough time sitting here panicking about this question anyway. We have time to write down a few words on a piece of paper. We're going to go from moral duty to prevent family members from being harmed. That's going to be part one of the argument. And then we're going to have our arrow over to that means that you get to hide your children from the police if they're falsely accused. And then we've got our arrow over to it is sometimes morally right to obstruct the police in their work. And I'm hoping that then by creating that visual representation of it, the flaws are going to come forward a little bit more. I always think that's the first place to start on almost any type of question. It's just, let's break this argument down into its pieces because we're missing a connection here. Yeah, I think that's really good advice and super applicable no matter who your student is. Because every, I mean, this, this is what I do too. Every time I sit down and prep for a either a video or when I'm actually doing test life, I'm always thinking to myself, this is an argument, which means I need to know where the support structure lives. And particularly in an argument like this, where there's minor premise to major premise to main conclusion, there are two support structures. And you see how the test writers are are using that to their advantage. They're using the existence of more than one support structure to hide where the error lives. Right? It's like, which door is it? Is it door number one? Or is it door number two? <laughs> and of course, we tend to focus on the thing that we just read, which is towards the end of the stimulus. And that's the part that's actually okay, because the error already occurred earlier. Absolutely. There's a lot going on in this question that the LSAT writers threw at us, and I think anyone's going to struggle with it. So it's good to remember these kinds of things, that I have the option to sit here and break down the question. I agree. Also reveals a lot of tricks that the test writers like to use. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's look at a different question now. Let's look at question 17. Oh, I love this one. From section two. Yeah. Okay. So I'll do the same thing here. I'll read the questions and I'll read the stimulus. So the questions I'm here is the hospital executive's arguments, both vulnerable to criticism, on which involving objections. So again, vulnerable criticism, that's the key in on as a key phrase that tells you this is a flawed descriptive weakening question. And now the stimulus says, at a recent conference on nonprofit management, several computer experts maintained that the most significant threat faced by large institutions like universities and hospitals, the most significant threat is unauthorized access to confidential data. So in light of this testimony, we should make the protection of our client's confidentiality our highest priority. Okay, Henry, so what do you think? This stimulus is structurally simpler than the one we just looked at. Oh, certainly. Way easier to follow. I still, I'm going to be honest, I had a hard time finding a flaw in this one the first time too. And it's because <laughs> I did not zone in on a key word. All right. Listen, I saw experts maintain that this is the most significant threat. Therefore, we should make their confidentiality our highest priority. I was like, that seems right. And then I realized, yes. and then I realized, why am I asking the computer experts what the, what the priority of my hospital should be? Yeah. No, I, I had the same, I had the same reaction. Seriously, exact same reaction. I'm like, well, if experts are saying that this is, wait, why shouldn't we do this? Right? I mean, like the whole, like, why do we have experts in the first place? If everyone's just going to do whatever they want. This is where the LSAT is testing to see if you are comfortable with drawing the boundary on arguments that rest on appeals to authority, like drawing the boundary between because because look, arguments that rest on appeals to authority. Some of those arguments are fine and some of them are not fine. It's all a matter of the details of how the argument appeals to authority. Like you have to ask which authority, how many authorities, right? Like appeal to one authority is weaker than appeal to 
a consensus authority that's much stronger. And then appeal on authority on what subject within that domain of expertise? Well, that's a legitimate appeal to authority. Outside the domain of expertise, it's not a legitimate appeal to authority, right? So those are just two of the main considerations that that have to kind of light up as you read this. But of course, you first have to pick up on that key word, like you said, computer experts, right? They're computer experts. They're not just if they said several relevant experts maintain then that one edit, that one word swap will completely change the strength of this argument. If we swapped out computer for relevant, this argument will be totally fine. It'd be one of the best arguments on the logical reasoning section. But yeah, so if you caught that, then I feel like the answers kind of crack open. But Henry, maybe maybe talk about like, even if someone catches this and they still feel like, wait, why can't computer experts talk about unauthorized access to confidential data? That this, this seems like totally within their realm of expertise, right? Because like we've all heard the news about Russian hackers taking down entire companies and operations because they hacked into the system. So like if they're saying this is top priority, it's the most significant threat. Where is the illegitimacy in relying on that expertise? Uh, you know what? I'm going to repeat myself. We got to ask ourselves what words mean. <laughs> it's Is it really <laughs> our highest priority? Shouldn't doing heart surgery or something be our highest priority at the hospital? <laughs> that was where finally the alarm bells started going off for me. Was I was like, okay, I don't think, yeah, I don't think the hospital's highest priority is their computer security. Right. Like, I think this is where just understanding the context, understanding what we're so just taking a step back and thinking about what we're actually talking about here helps to reframe the situation a lot. I mean, this is a hospital that we're talking about. This is a hospital executive who's speaking to us. Right. Sure. I mean, you ask these computer experts, they're going to talk about what they know. They know security. So they're going to say, look, you know, your most significant threat is unauthorized access to confidential data. And then like, but you're a hospital administrator. You should be able to contextualize that and be like, yeah, that's what you think. But objectively speaking, that's definitely not our most significant threat. Our most significant threat is making sure we have electricity, making sure we have clean, or maybe I, should, I shouldn't say significant threat. As a hospital administrator, you're going to have a more objective framing of the situation. Your most significant threat might be something related to public health, like a COVID pandemic. Absolutely. It's I, in fact, I think we can cut out everything and we could if we wanted to perfect this argument in our minds to clear things up for us a little bit. It's just keeping our clients alive is the obvious highest priority. Their confidentiality has got to be second to that. Yeah, 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 for sure. So whatever threatens that that objective of keeping our patients alive and healthy and, you know, recovered, those things I feel like rank higher than protecting. You know, not that it's not important. Obviously, it's important to protect their data, but there's a rank order to these things. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the good thing about this question where there were a couple more places where alarm bells started going off in our heads while we were reading the stimulus than there were on the previous question. On this one, you know, even if you missed that keyword computer experts, I think they're throwing you a little bone saying that confidentiality is the highest priority at the hospital where you can, you might like the argument, but you're, you're going to start thinking, okay, is that right? Maybe I'm going to go back and see if I missed something. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point because they're modulating down the difficulty by putting the word hospital and confidential data. It's like, wait, when I think about hospitals and what's important, I tend not to think about confidential data. And that's for a good reason because there are other things that are more important than data confidentiality at a hospital. And, you know, I think the tough thing about this question wasn't necessarily the stimulus. I think the stimulus, if you can sit here for a second stop panicking and find those key words, I think you're in pretty good shape to answer the question. But if you come out of this one confused and you go and look in the answer choices, I think you're going to have a really hard time getting to it. Oof. Yeah. I mean, this is this is so common. Like the LR section is so punishing of a confused understanding of the stimulus. The answer choices ruthlessly take advantage of that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no. I think if you don't catch hospital executive and computer experts, I think you're toast on this question. I think you're guessing <laughs> you're guessing between five answer choices. Yeah. I mean, A talks about A is not the right answer. It's the most popular wrong answer. It says the argument confuses the cause of a problem with the appropriate solutions to that problem. So this is a cookie cutter answer on flaw questions. This is the right answer on other flaw questions where precisely the logical reasoning mistake was confusing cause for effect, or rather here, cause for solution. But here, it doesn't map on. It descriptively, it doesn't even map on to the argument. We don't know what causes the problem. Like, what is the cause of the problem? Even if we grant that confidential data breach is the threat, like, what causes that? The argument is silent on what the cause of that is. Plus, it also doesn't talk about what the appropriate solution is. The hospital executive in the conclusion just says, make protection of our confidential highest priority. Okay, that's not a solution. That's just like, you want to do this. How, how are you going to do it? What are you going to do? You're going to upgrade your computer systems? You're going to hire more security X? Those are solutions. And the thing is, I think we don't take the time on these questions a lot of the time to think through these things. We're under time pressure. We're confused by the stimulus. And we see a cookie cutter answer like this. I got trapped by these all the time when I first started studying. The worst one I would always go for was the begging the question answer. The, you know, the argument presumes the truth of its conclusion. I would go for those all the time because I would say, I'm confused and this sounds like formal logic, so I'm picking it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the test writers also did a good job of hiding the correct answer choice, which is B. You know, it says the argument relies on the testimony of experts whose expertise is not shown to be sufficiently broad to support their general claim. I mean, on first blush, I'm like, wait, but you're relying on the testimony of computer experts talking about data breach, right? Confidential, like, how is that not completely within their wheelhouse? Absolutely. And this is why I was just saying you're toast if you didn't catch that it's a hospital executive. Right. So lay it out for me, like be super explicit about this. Henry. Like, why is it that their expertise is not sufficiently broad to support their general claim? Like how general is their claim? And why is their expertise not broad enough to support that general claim? Because the general claim is that the most significant threat faced by these institutions is unauthorized access to their confidential data. Maybe if they said the most significant IT threat faced yeah, by these institutions, then I would be happy yeah. with it. But these people don't get to say what is the most important thing. A university's highest priority isn't confidentiality either. It's research and teaching their students or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Once you realize that it's a computer expert talking about the most significant threat unqualified to a large institution, then you'll be like, wait a second, I feel like that's probably overstepping a little bit. Absolutely. So once you recognize that, I think then B fits. B fits very neatly as the accurate description. I liked this one a lot. B really, the first time I read through this question, when you emailed it to me, I made the same exact mistake that you were mentioning that, wait, computer experts do get to say this. And it took me a while to get to, it was finally saying, wait, why would a hospital's highest priority be confidentiality? You know, it was literally, it was, it took that to finally get there. Hard question. Very well-crafted question. Henry scored a 180 on his June 2020 LSAT. He is a 7th stage tutor and soon to be 1L at Columbia Law. Congratulations again. You can reach out to him on our discussion forum at 7thstage.com slash discussion. Henry, thanks so much for being on the podcast and take care. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. You take care too. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you got some good advice. I would also encourage you to implement the strategies that Henry and I demonstrated during your own blind review. That will require considerably more effort than listening to a podcast, but the rewards will also be considerably greater. If you're prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at 7sh.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.